Josh Mills. And this is John Mills. Welcome back to another episode of Acquired Tastings. We're super excited to have you guys back on this next episode. Uh, normally, we would be doing a cocktail episode, but next week, we're going to be hanging out with the guys from the Great Cut, doing cigars and cocktails. So we're on the wine this week, and this week, we're doing a fantastic American region. We are focusing on Oregon wine. So, Dad, what did you bring this week? Oh, that's right. I brought a Montenegro Estate Reserve Pinot Noir. So I'm really excited about that wine. What'd you bring today, Josh? I have the Erie Vineyard Oregon Pinot Gris from 2017. So we got a white and a red this week. What about your snack? So I've got honey soy ahe tuna. I've got a more manchego. It's only aged one year, but it's really a good cheese. It's using sheep milk. I hadn't had one that I can remember, sheep milk. Okay. And then I've got an Italian sausage angel hair pasta. Sounds pretty good. What about you? What I have a uh, ham or bacon and cheese and looks like a little bit of vegetable quiche. I have some Italian dry salami. And then I have some charshu pork. So charshu pork belly is a Chinese barbecue style pork belly. Oh man, that sounds good. Ooh, I'm looking forward to it. So uh, so we blind a, a liquor last week, Dad. What was it? Well, what'd you say it was first, Josh? Uh, I think I said it was a rum that was, um, I thought it was between four and eight years old. Yeah, I pushed you too hard on that. Maybe uh, if I hadn't pushed you so hard, you would have figured out it was 12-year-old. Mm. And it's uh, Florida Cana. So it was a rum. It was a rum. Florida Cana. It's a Nicaraguan rum. Oh. Their plant, their distillery is at the base of a volcano. Oh, wow. Oh, man. You know, they say the soil is part of the secret. They are a sustainable location. They have been doing schooling of the children since 1913. And they have a hospital set up for the workers as well. And one of the things they do is they use white oak barrels, bourbon barrels, as their aging. They call it slow aging. Now, I did some research on slow aging. And the first thing I get is, no, uh, there's no such thing as slow or fast. And then I watched a video that sounded like if you put uh, sugar and things like that into your rum, the fermenting will go faster and aging would even go faster. So, you know, there's two thoughts on that. And the other thing is that when they close up that oak barrel, they use plantain leaves to help close it up so that's unique i've never heard of anything like that that is unique and it was it was a good rum wasn't it yeah it was you know thinking about it i wonder how it would pair with some nicaraguan cigars because there's some tobacco um, cigar makers grow tobacco in that same volcanic soil so i wonder if it would be i think that would work fantastic and one of the things that i researched too is the bartenders really really love this rum because it's aged from four all the way up to 25 years. Wow. So this is middle of the road. And I, I got this when I was in Costa Rica, uh, so I don't really remember the price point. I know you can buy it at our favorite liquor store. I've seen it there. So I think it uh, might be something that our viewers, our listeners would want to check into. Yeah, I mean, like we talked about last week, we got a lot of good rums out there that can be good sipping rums. They don't even have to be made in to cocktails and that one was another one that would be really good and for that american if you love sweet stuff and you want to go for a sipping liquor that's not going to break the bank i mean definitely give the rums a try that one was really good too yeah i think you could try this one or or the venezuelan that you had either one yeah definitely all right so white wine first all right we'll start with the wine so uh the white wine we have once again is the erie vineyard pinot gris from 2017 so this has got a little bit of age on it and it was really cool doing the research on um the region this week because i you know i picked the wine without even knowing the story but the gentleman who started erie uh david let i think it's let or lette he was the first guy to really go in and try and make stellar wines in the oregon valley or in the Willamette Valley. And so his the, the story of Oregon is also the story of Erie. And when he first started planting, he planted Chardonnay, Cabernet Sauvignon, and he also did some Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris. And so that kind of helped cultivate the land as uh, Oregon moved on. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Willamette Valley as we continue on. Willamette, damn it. Willamette, damn it. Valley. 
It is always, it is, that's how you remember to pronounce it. It's not Willamette, it's Willamette, damn it. So it's a, it's a fun little wine. So what are you getting off of the first couple of smells of it, Dad? Oh, lots of great floral to it. Really sweet floral. And I looked at the legs. They're really nice legs. Did you see those? I haven't quite got into yeah, them. Yeah, they're, they're long. I mean, the colors are really nice, deep. Um, well, it's not really deep. I'd say no. you know, it's kind of a pale a pale yellow or a pale gold. Yeah, it's kind of that straw color. It's got some kind of like greeny or, or silveriness to it as well. You getting a reflection off your computer? Uh, no. <laughs> no, but it's just kind of a, it's a secondary hint. Like, so you have your main color there. But there's also like, there's been some silver in it as well. Kind of lighten it up. It looks good. It smells good. It kind of smells like honeysuckle. I hadn't dissected the floral yet. A little bit of sweet, sweet floral character. I've got mine up against the white paper. I don't see those colors you saw, Josh. Well, the secondary colors are something you kind of have to, you you learn how to look for them. And it's kind of, they come in, in white wines, they kind of come in flashes. So they're not really like scene scene. Oh, is it like Um, the green flash in the Caribbean? It kind of is like the the green flash. And, you know, you, when you study wine, you understand what like pale yellow is. And then if it's pale yellow, and then there's some other things going on with that pale yellow, but it's not a different main color, that's when you start looking at the secondary color. And that's kind of what I'm saying is with this one, it has that pale yellow, but then there's some like otherliness to it that's not taking it to another color, major color level. But that's why I kind of say there's like some silvery or some green. Isn't yellow a prime color? So really no other colors with it. Yes, but if you add other elements to it, it will make other colors, correct? Okay. <laughs> so back to the green flash. Now, we, last week we had we talked about rum a lot last week, and I don't know why I didn't bring up the green flash. You were too busy talking about the Playboy Bunny. Well, you know, you know, you kind of fall back into that that old time stuff that you remember. But the green flash, if you've never heard about it, here's what it is. So some people say you've had to drink a lot of rum to see it, but I don't think that's true. And what it is, is when the sun sets and you've got a perfectly flat ocean, because you're in the Caribbean, let's say, and you're looking out to the west, that yellow of the sun and that blue of the ocean, that last second, split second, millisecond, microsecond of when the sun goes down below that ocean horizon, you can get this spark of green yeah and i mean there's a lot of legends that go along with the green flash too some of it is that's when there there's a soul that's been ferried to the other side is when the flash happens that's exactly right you know that you're back to uh captain jack <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah yeah that's my text to movie connect right wind a movie connection exactly today. And you don't always see it because most of the time you're out there and you're, you're watching for it and you think, oh boy, this is going to be a great night for it. I don't see any clouds. Uh, it's real flat ocean. There's no wind. Next thing you know, the wind kind of pops up or there's the clouds right at the horizon. So you don't see it. Yeah. But it is really impressive when you do see it. Yeah. So uh, anyway, back to, your <laughs> back to the wine, you know, getting some kind of honeysuckle. I'm getting like some lemon pith for the white part. Of the lemon, the kind of bittering part of it. I now get the honeysuckle. You're right about that. Not a whole, whole lot on the nose, which can be characteristic of Pinot Gris when your wine tastes good. You know, they joke that, you know, Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio can be cold, wet, and alcoholic. But I'll yeah. <laughs> but this one's definitely got a little bit more flavor on the taste. So you get any kind of apricots or peaches with that honeysuckle? To me, it's a little bit more citrus driven. Um, okay. I'm getting a lot of like that pithy, bittery kind of taste. Um, and then some like melon, honeydew melon or watermelon. It's definitely not watermelon, and so it's right. So it might be a honeydew melon, more of honeydew or kind of cantaloupe, but honeydew would probably. I was sort of getting a little apricot, and I don't eat a lot of apricots, so I don't really know the flavor. Well, of it's like we said in many other podcasts, kind of your that's really not in the wine. It's just a taste sensor that kind of throws you back to remembering a taste. Yeah, and I'm also dealing with some allergies today. So my, I know my nose is off. You know, ninety percent of what you taste is 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 also going through your nose. That's right. That's right. But yeah, let's get into some of these pairings. So we've got a quiche, a uh, cheese and meat and vegetable quiche. 
Where should we start, Josh? I think we go ahead and start with the quiche. Okay. I think it's going to be okay. lightest on the palate and then moving to the salami next. Let me try that quiche with it. Oh, that's that's a really nice one. Yeah, what was cheap. the price point on that one? It was on sale for under twenty dollars. Oh, okay. I think on the wet on from Erie's website, they sell it for like twenty two dollars a bottle. Oh, okay. It's a really affordable wine. I thought about getting some Chardonnay, but one since we're not big Chardonnay people and. The Chardonnays I was looking for weren't available because I wanted something that would be more Burgundian in style, not a lot of oak. Uh, they were also just up in, you know, the 40s and $50 range. Yeah. You know, for us who don't really care for Chardonnay, that is a little bit high. Go ahead and buy. And that's why I knew this wine is solid. I sure wouldn't buy if it was oak barrels. If it was stainless steel. Right. Or I neutral might. oak. I might. Yeah. So a little bit more about this wine kind of as we're doing the doing the pairings um which i think that quiche and pinot gris is delicious it is yeah yeah the softness of the egg and the brightness and that bittery and by the way bitterness there, there's bacon in there so it couldn't go wrong there <laughs> yeah yeah but they uh it's more the egg and the cheese quality um kind of lifts up and kind of touches out the bitterness some of that pithy bitterness that okay. i'm tasting and it's a uh, it's really good it's kind of a sweet on sweet so they they don't really they don't really concentrate and connect other than the sweetness as far as i can tell i don't get any sourness from the quiche but there is bacon in there like i said and i'm not sure what uh you know we got green flecks in there i'm not sure what that actually is i think there's some asparagus and some broccoli in there but the broccoli i'm pretty sure that's right the bacon actually gives a depth to the wine that is not there that's not there and it also the wine gives some high, some higher tones to the to the bacon and the quiche itself is it's really light and airy. I think it's a really good pairing. I mean, heck, for brunch, oh yeah, it'd be fantastic. Or even at, even at dinner time, this would be. Yeah, if you didn't if you didn't feel like a, a champagne or a sparkling for that brunch with your quiche, this goes great. And the price point's good. Yeah, you know, less than twenty. Yeah, and it does kind of bring out. Quiche brings out a little bit more of the fruit. And I kind of see where you're coming with that apricot now. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Um, kind of more of those stone fruit. Um, I wouldn't quite call it peach. So that's why I'm kind of thinking apricot. Yeah, I think call. it's the apricot. The peach was kind of throw out. Yeah. Is that what it is? Right. But yeah, so um, I think both of our wines, your wines, yeah, both of these wines today are coming from the Willamette Valley in Oregon, which is kind of the main yeah. the main place where wine comes from in Oregon. And one of the reasons it's really good for wine is because coastal range you know runs from california all the way up to washington yeah so the the coastal range kind of protect protects the valley and allows that pacific moisture to come over and then cool a little bit and provide a more moisture more humidity to the valley and keep the temperatures down you know a lot like it does in california and a lot like like france yeah a lot like in burgundy where they have the Cote d'Or and uh so there's, you know, fog in those areas, but they were saying in the Willamette Valley, it actually provides more rain. Oh, okay. And, you know, for some of those cooler, damp temperatures. And that's why you find a lot of Burgundian or Burgundy-style wines coming out of Oregon as compared to anywhere else in the United States. And I'm sure we're going to find this when we get into your, when we get into the Pinot Noir. It is. These are super delicious. Like I said, you know, this very young region started in the 1960s. Oh really? Yeah. So that's well. <laughs> we'll we'll uh, compare notes when I tell you when uh, this wine, where the red wine, when it was actually planted. Yeah. Well, so there's there were great there were there were great vines in there a long time ago, but more the modern style and modern focus on higher end wines rather than just table wines started around in the '60s. So all right, you want to get into uh, the next thing well, we got? Which, which should we go to? I think let's go to the salami next. All right, that's what I'm doing. What salami is this, Josh? This is a um, Italian dry salami, so it's not really extra cured. Um, it's going to be fatty, and I think it's it actually is treated with a little bit of wine too. So I think some of that's going to play really well. Um, it's going to be a, it's definitely a contrasting pairing because it is going to be a heavier meat with a lot of fat, but I think it's going to go well with the acidity of the wine, even though it is three years old. Oh, okay, three year old salami. No, three-year-old oh, wine. wine. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there is fat, there's fattiness in that salami, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Let's see how it goes. Well, the wine goes well. You know, that's a good pairing as well. It may not be as good as the quiche, but that's a good pairing. That 
fattiness of the salami, sweetness of the wine. Yeah, and it's really the acid that gives it the ability to go for it because the wine is quite acidic. Yeah, yeah. And the acid and the fat play really well together. You know, do that driver. The driver's wetting in your when you're tasting things. But I think I want the salami to be more herbaceous. Really? Like I want some extra herbs to it because it's pretty linear in its taste. You know, it's fat meat. Mm-hmm. And I think this wine is really craving for something a little bit more herbaceous. Will you have another? Well, I, I know we do, but I'm just saying like with the salami itself. But I think if we had salami, that peppered salami that we get sometimes. Uh-huh. Or a sopressata. That, that, that would just overpower. I don't know. I really think the that that bite and some of that coming through would actually work really well. Or maybe the, uh, remember we've had that boar sausage before? Oh, yeah. I think that would work because that gaminess would give it an extra depth for the wine to play with. Even though, yes, it is a white wine, it's pretty delicate. This is actually quite flavorful, and it's not as delicate as some other wines that we've Yeah, it's standing up. It's really standing up well to it. Which is kind of surprising to me because I was kind of worried about this with it being a, um, I'm pretty sure it's pork face, salami, that it would just kind of run it over. And I don't know, have you gotten a piece with like a peppercorn in it yet? No. There's some pieces of this that have like peppercorns running through it. I found one. I'm gonna... Oh, here's one. Try that. I really think that pepper is going to help give it an extra depth and kind of go with the wine. Now, the peppercorn was pretty small, so it didn't didn't add a whole lot to the sausage. Yeah. But I can definitely taste it. Right. And, you know, talking about these pairings and everything, we talked about how this is Burgundian, you know. This, this grape, Pinot you know, Gris, is, first of all, it's actually a pink grape. It's not white, even though the, the skin is actually pink. That's why it's called Pinot Gris rather than Pinot Blanc. Yeah, so there's so Pinot Blanc is not the same thing as Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio, but Pinot Gris and Pinot Grigio are the same thing. Okay. So if you like Pinot Grigios from Northern Italy, pick up a Pinot Gris. It's going to be this, it's the same grape. It's going to have a lot of those easy drinking full flavors that you're looking for from your Echo Domani and those They just don't use the skins making the wine, right? Yeah, they don't leave it when they press it. They don't actually leave it on the now with some of their white wines i was doing in my research with erie they actually do allow for some of that skin contact so you can tell in this one they don't because it is so light and bright color but they do allow for some of that skin contact which brings out some more of that flavor and some of that bitteriness from the from the skins which is not which is not common for a lot of white wine have you ever heard of orange wine it's kind of a big thing right no now. i haven't Orange wine is a really cool wine. If you can find it, I highly recommend that you try an orange wine. If you are afraid of it and it's only by the bottle, okay, don't try it. But if you see it by the glass, ask your ask your server for a taste of it because so what is it? So orange or, wine. Orange that wine is weird. So orange wine is white wine that is allowed to lay on the skins like red wine. Oh, okay. So when you press Pinot Noir, it actually comes out clear mm-hmm. and the color is actually extracted from spending time on the skins and being punched down or pumped over mm-hmm. over a course of time to allow that pigment to actually extract into the wine they're doing that same process with white wine so the wine actually comes out like golden or copper uh, or it has that like hinge of like rosé okay and it adds a, such a different depth and flavor and a so completely you different profile. You I, have, had I have had a couple orange wines. The one that I wish I could find, but it was brought back from France, if I'm not mistaken. It was a orange, it was a skin contact Gehertzmeter. Oh, okay. So it had, and Gehertzmeter is another pink skin grape. All right. So it came out this like coppery, burnt orange color and had all those lovely fruit and tropical fruit and floral notes of a Hertz meter, but had this like extra little bittery depth to it, which was so good. Anyway, we're getting off topic. I, lo- I, love or- I love orange wines and they're hard to find around here. I thought that was really cool. Moving toward these more Gundian style or cooler climate grapes was what Erie did. You know, like I said, he, he actually planted Cabernet Sauvignon at the beginning because both Cab and Chardonnay are late ripening grapes. So later in the into the wine into the growing season is when they actually come to full ripen. It was actually Cabernet didn't have enough time to ripen in the Willamette Valley, so they moved over to Pinot Noir and some other things, and which was really cool because 
they're saying like, yeah, it's, this is a lot like burgundy. And even putting in some of the burgundy rootstocks, which is really oh, okay. cool. So I've been chatting. What have you been eating? Well, I went it? back. I went back to the quiche. That's such. That's a really drink. good. So, so you want to try the the last the last little pairing? So we were talking about how this area is like America's Burgundy. I mean, the land is so much like Burgundy that there are Burgundy style wines can be made so well. There are actually French houses that are setting up shop in or Joseph Druin was the first one to do it. And, you know, that's a huge, that's a huge thing because it's saying a French house. So explain that. So Druid, so Domaine Druin okay. is a major Burgundy producer. They're like Louis Latour. Mm. They're one of those big, big names from Burgundy. They actually purchase land and are growing grapes and selling them under the Druin label from Oregon. Do, it's Domaine Druin in the United States, but it's Chateau, or Chateau Druin okay. in France. Okay. But that's a huge compliment because it's saying, look, we feel confident enough that we can make our style of wines in right this here, soil. in the United States. And, and so, you know. Oh, that is cool. It, it's really cool. And, you know, Druin wines are really, really good here in the United States. And, you know, kind of like Dave Lett and all the, all the other guys that came out in the 60s and the 70s or even the 50s, to just start making this place, gonna, it, they willed it to make good wine, and they figured out what it was. Now, one of the things that Erie does that I really like is they're really hands-off, or as they say, they have a gentle putt with their wine. Mm-hmm. So they're not, they're not pushing a whole lot with it. They allow for fermentation to happen based on the temperatures in their in their cellar the warming of the day the cooling of the night that's what that's what affects their fermentation they don't use climate controlled vats they allow the fermentation to happen naturally in their chardonnays and their pinot noirs they actually use spontaneous natural fermentation oh really yeah and the wine that we have tonight pinot gris is inoculated so they put in a, a yeast but it's a yeast strain that they cultivated from their land so it's still so you know yeast is everywhere Right. And you can capture a yeast and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to cultivate this particular yeast that's from this area. And so then they can recreate it, recreate it, recreate it. And that's what they do with their, with their Pinot Gris and a couple of other wines. It's still local. They're not going and buying a specific strain. They have one that was made from their property. Uh, okay. Could have been okay. what's spontaneous, but they're taking a little bit more initiative and there. they've got generation after generation after generation of that same yeast that they're cultivating. Exactly. Okay. And they do minimal racking. So racking is when you take from a barrel and move it into a new barrel. Yeah. And yeah. A, lot of times, a lot of times when you rack, those yeast, that yeast that have died are left in the barrel. That's right. So they're not moved forward. So when you don't do that, the wine gets to sit on those dead yeast cells. And we know from talking about sparkling wine that dead yeast actually imparts flavor, imparts like a breadiness, and gives it a more round texture. While this is pretty acidic, it is not as acidic as other Pinot Grigios. It's like it's got rounded edges even though it has good acid on it. So you do the same thing with beer. You want to rack it out and put it into another container after the dead yeast right because the dead yeast you don't want it laying on that dead yeast because with beer you may end up having skunky beer because it's been laying on that dead yeast right but in wine it's actually a good thing yeah it's a different it's a different thing they also allow all their wines to go through full malolactic fermentation okay which means when you make wine you create Malic acid. So malic acid is like uh, green apple acid. Mm-hmm. Sharp, really bitter, you know, really astringent, hits you in the face. And lactic acid is like milk. Mm-hmm. The acidity of milk's more soft, it's more mm-hmm. rounded. So the malolactic fermentation is the conversion of lactic acid to, or malic acid to lactic acid. And some places don't let white wines go through that because they want the sharp bite, that right. apple skin. But they allow it to go against that more rich flavor plus the lees it's you know you know i'm i knew i liked erie wines really getting into their processes and everything i really learned that i I need to pour more i need to pour and pull more erie wine because they kind of fit with my philosophy when it comes to drinking wine and your palate too yeah but if i if i were to make wine this is the type of wine that i would try and make okay you know let the stuff speak for itself don't get in its way um 
they don't use a lot of new oak in their wines. They say for every 25 barrels, only one of them is considered new, which is oh, really? in the first okay. three years of usage. Um, so most of them allow for that development of flavor, but not the oakiness. Okay. They give the flavors of the wine roundedness rather than covering them up with that new okay. toastiness. So, Josh, I've been over here snacking. Sorry, I, I've been talking about it because I really like what they're doing. And it's super exciting to me. So what have you been snacking and tasting? Well, what's this other meat? It, it's uh, charred. So it's charchoux. So it's pork charchoux. And yeah. you charred it in the skillet. Yeah, I, I seared it off. So it's a it's pork belly that is done in a Chinese barbecue style. And I sous vide cooked it. And then I cut it up and seared it. It's quite fatty. So it's like bacon. It's pork belly. Mm-hmm. But it does not overpower the wine. The wine fits very well with it they're playing very nice in the same sandbox so the fattiness of the meat and the sweet and acidity of the wine oh man they're just smooth together that, smooth. that's so, you so just so, tried it yeah i just tried it so normally when you do this you glaze it with the same sauce that it's marinated in i didn't do that because i thought it would overpower it and i'm really glad i didn't because that is so good the pork belly has that char on it and pork belly is just delicious by itself because it's unctuous and it's fatty the the wine just kind of gives it those softer edges that it that it wants and pork belly brings out that sweeter fruitiness of the wine because and then you don't get overly fattiness which is one of the things pork belly sometimes you it's just overly fatty that's right but this you know gives it that racy acidity to cut through it and that's that's really good so Lost Forty has pork belly, and of course, what's the what's the food truck? Count Porkula. Yeah, Count Porkula. That's at the rail yard. Yeah. So sometimes you you get overpowered with those, but this really, really is good. And this is also not smoked. That's right. Like a lot of pork belly. I don't know that smoking it would have caused a problem. Yeah. You know, a lot of times you say you're going to have a smoked meat. You need a robust wine to go with it but these are old rules it's just like oh well if you're gonna have fish you're supposed to have sweet white wine so we're gonna have this pinot noir later and, and now I, I was gonna say and notice you did fish with your red and i did not do fish with my white right i did think about it because right. i knew it would i knew it would go i knew it would go well but i wanted to we're trying to throw a little bit of a curveball yeah at at you listeners but it's not really a curveball it's just saying as we've said a number of times, eat what you like, drink what you like, put them together, see if they work. If they don't work, I don't think you've wasted much. You've had good food. Right. You've had good wine. They just may not be the perfect fit that you wanted. And, and I, it, you, yeah. it just worked. And I call these types of pairings, I call them stretch pairings. So I call it, you know, I've got stretch wines and stretch pairings and stretchy pants. So stretch, stretch wines are wines that are like wines that you like but aren't exactly it. Mm-hmm. Stretch pairings are pairings that just kind of stretch the boundary of what you think might work or traditionally, because you can do white wine with pork. Right. Like, it's definitely possible. But using a Chinese barbecue sauce that's got, you know, hoisin, uh, ois, um, uh, what is it called? Soy sauce. It's got soy sauce, but it's got mushroom, mushroom oyster sauce in right. it. Um, goju jang. You know, things that don't lend itself to the norm or that a lot of palates are normal to and then pairing it with wine. It doesn't have to be sake. Right. And moving and moving those things together is something that you might not think about. But now seeing that it was like, it's like the, the pork, the pork dumplings in the Oktoberfest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I think the quiche was a great pairing, but this pork belly, I think, was better. I think so, too. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't glaze it. Like I've done before, because that would have been overpowering. Well, you don't know till you try it. True, but the glaze that I use with it is so—it's so so flavorful. Mm. And without like soaking into the pork like that, I just think it would be too much. A couple last things about you know Erie and this wine, and we can move on. Erie is an organic vineyard; they're actually certified organic. Organic, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're you know, all into you know the no no use of pesticides and all that and sustainability land. We talked about the aging in neutral oak and all that kind of stuff well this pinot gris ages for 11 months which is unheard of right for this grape 
normally fresh stainless steel put it out but they actually allow all their wines to develop in barrel or stainless steel because they want that mature wine that can be drunk now or can hold because i think this wine could age for at least two or three more years i think so too i don't i don't know that it would be if it would change as much as a cab would you know cab cabs get better and better and better the more they're aged. Mm-hmm. I don't know that this one would be on the same curve of gaining the the betterness to it, but well, I think it I'm with you. I think it if they put it in, I think if they aged it another year or two, it'd probably be fantastic. Yeah, I definitely think I think it's going to hit its stride around the five year five year mark, because okay. a lot of, some of that um, astringency will kind of wear off. So, anything else about mine before we move over to the Pinot Noir? Well, well, damn it, damn it. Yep. That Erie. Yep. Do you know how many acres they have? Um, did you find that in your notes? I did. I didn't write it down. They have quite a few, quite a few um, hectares of land. I'm not exactly sure. My understanding about Willamette Valley is a lot of those uh, vineyards aren't that huge. They're they're small compared to maybe Napa. Yeah, the vineyard the vineyard sites themselves are pretty small because they kind of hit these microclimates. Exactly. Because the, the land is I, very undulating. Yeah. But I don't know exactly know how many um, hectares of, of land Erie actually has. Oh, okay. Okay. You want to move on? I'm ready if you are. Okay. All right, so let's go into the Pinot Noir. All right. You talked about organic, and that's, that's a new that's a buzzword that everybody uses. Montenoir Estate. They say they're organic as well, but they also say biodynamic. Oh, they're biodynamic people. So what that actually means is, you know, we've heard about natural and we've heard about organic, but what what biodynamic is, it's saying this vineyard is an alive entity. So don't mess with it. Don't do things that might kill it and... That's a whole new level, and really new is the wrong word because biodynamics started in the 20s. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the biodynamic was coined in the 20s, and I don't know that it's really caught on because it was kind of new to me. You apparently had heard it because you, yeah. you said that. Yeah, biodynamic is one of the big things in moving through some newer winemakers now. Um, it's, a, it's a very very interesting process um and a very interesting way to view the land and things that you do with it now for those of you that know the biodynamic stuff we are currently tasting on a leaf day just just throwing that out there go ahead go ahead and continue and i'll i'll, I'll talk more about that in a you'll bit. talk about that yeah well <sighs> i said it started in the 20s and it was dr rudolph steiner and he gave a series of lectures and he was the one that really started the whole movement saying that the farms or the vineyard or just whatever was a live entity. And you kind of think about it that way. All those vines are really working together to create these grapes. And if you threw some pesticide on one of them, it's overspray to something else. Right. And if you came in there with your, with your lawnmower or whatever, that could be a problem. So, you know, they they utilize nutrient-infused and insect-promoted cover crop. And I'm not real sure what all that really meant. But do you know, what a cover, you know what a cover crop is? Go for it. So a cover crop is something that you allow to grow between the vines. So it covers the ground between the vines. Right. Uh, a lot of times you'll see vineyards with no cover crop, which means it's just dirt that they'll till over. But... A cover crop is is anything you allow to grow on the ground between the vines. Right. And so what they're saying there is we're allowing stuff to grow between our vines. Now, we may plant something, but a lot of times it's grass, and it allows to put nutrients back into the soil, and it allows a place for insects to actually live. And, in fact, we saw that in New Zealand on one of our trips. We took a, a wine tour. They went to different wineries, and one of them talked about that. I don't remember them saying that they were biodynamic. I remember them saying organic, but I noticed that there was grass growing between every row of the vine. Right, and just because you allow a cover crop to grow does not make 
biodynamic. There's a lot of things you have to do to become biodynamic. So I found that interesting. I also find that their their winemaking, I didn't really see any uniqueness other than the vintner himself, the winemaker himself. He had done winemaking all over the world. He had been in New, New Zealand. He had been in France. And so now he's in Oregon. So he had all this expert experience that he's now working at the Montreno estate making their wine. Have you tasted it yet? I have. I have tasted it. It's good. It, it is really good. And I hadn't looked at the legs. It's it's your normal uh, burgundy red color. It's it's actually kind of you know it's deep. It's deeper than I would expect from some from some Pinot Noirs. It, but it is that still like see through ruby red. But it is a deep deep ruby red. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Right. You know even even with a white background. You know it's still dark ruby. It's got like you know some little magentaness in it. And you know, it's a. I mean, it's a pretty. It's a pretty wine. It is a pretty wine. The vintner strives for flavors that complement a variety of foods. So I think with the foods that I'm hoping will pair well, will work. You know, he had experience in Italy. He had experience in uh, France. So oh, he's got a lot of experience, and now he's in Oregon. Yep, it's a very. So he's. It's a. Pr- it's a pretty smelling wine. Oh, I hadn't. I've I mean, smelled it, but I hadn't talked about it. Smells like. What do you get? You know, cherries and in a bouquet of flowers it's 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 it smells really good it's very very floral but then with some really good fruit underneath it and light earth on it i mean it smells smells so uh rosa and carlos marchese that's uh they started in northern ireland or northern italy pardon me and they grow they grew to produce their own food made their own wine so they have a whole lot of experience. They made and sold wine on the East Coast while raising their family, and now they've moved to Oregon wine country. Yeah, the market. So a lot of these, a lot of these folks that are in Oregon, they've had experience elsewhere, and that's really neat. Yeah, it's a pretty hot, it's a pretty hot region to be a winemaker in right now. Um, but did you find anything else about the being what it takes to be biodynamic? This this website Especially I looked certified. at didn't really go into a whole lot of detail. It talks about a very low carbon footprint. Right. There's also some other things that go into being biodynamic. So when you look into the the writings and the teachings of the gentleman who started biodynamic, there's a lot of giving back to the soil or the earth what we have taken away. Um, there are some very ritualistic things that have to happen. Um, when it comes to when you plant, if you're planting a new vineyard, when you plant, uh, when you harvest the grapes, and then on each solstice and each in each equinox, you are to perform. There is a certain uh, ritual. Yeah, right. There's a certain ritual that you perform. I did see that. And one of them is you fill a cow's horn full of dung yeah. and you bury yeah. it. You yeah. bury it into the, into the vineyard as a you know kind of something that you're giving back to the earth and you know, I don't know when it comes to tasting wine, if it's one of those things you think about because you're trying to define something and it's a, it's a connection that you make without basis, but, um, biodynamic wines, in my opinion, taste different on different days. And a lot of it has to do with the lunar calendar. Um, it's very celestially based and there are four types of days that you can have. You have a flower day a fruit day a leaf day and a root day and so we're on a leaf day we are on saying? a leaf day which is in their consideration is not good for wine i don't exactly know what what things make a leaf day bad versus a fruit day or um a root day what kind of what how it's different but there have been times that you i've tasted a wine at one time blind tasted a wine at one time Tasted fine, tasted great, tasted delicious. And then I tasted it on a different day, and it tastes completely different. And lo and behold, look up, and the day I tasted it first, it was one of the good days. It may have been a fruit day. It was the wine or the fruit day. It may have been a fruit day, and then the day I was tasting it was a root day. And I I can't explain it. So is this it's just something day? that happens. Is this leaf day a bad day? Well, leaf day is considered a bad day to drink, bad day to taste wine. 
Wait a minute. I, I'm just, I'm, <laughs> Josh. I'm just saying what what they say. It doesn't always hold true. It's just something that I've noticed as a taste. I don't fully believe in it. I also have, I don't, like, you basically have heard all the knowledge I have about biodynamic wine. Oh, okay. Well, um, I saw some. And there's some, there's some, vin- uh, there's some things you do in the vineyard as well. Or not in the vineyard, in the in the cellar as well when it comes to being biodynamic. Like, you talked about being very hands-off when it comes to the winemaking process. You allow the wine to do what it's going to do. Well, so, back, back to Rudolph, he would warn against the environmentally destruction view of the farm as a factory. So that view of the farm being the factory was completely off from being biodynamic of the of the farm being alive. Right. He revitalized really all he did is revitalize techniques and traditions that had been gone on going on for thousands thousands of years. So he really didn't do anything. Yeah, the, I I saw a picture in this uh write-up that I found of the bullhorn with the dung in it that they were planting. I think you plant it. I think it's the summer solstice. Well, there's a whole lot of a lot of things like that. So what do you what what notes are you getting? Just on the wine itself, very fruit forward. Um, you know, really ripe cherry, almost like cherry juice. So there's a lot of jammy kind of thing going with it. Don't you get that? Yeah, a lot of fruit, really jam. Tannins are pretty low on this. The acid is high though. I you know this is. For Pinot Noir, this is a young wine. You know, this is a 2016. That's right. So it's four years old. I think this definitely would um, be better with some more age on it. Um, not that it's bad right now, but I think it would just develop more. Because it's, it's very fruit forward. It's very floral. And it's acidic. Kind of what I'm tasting. So have you tried any pairings with it? Um, I'm about to get into the Manchego. I haven't tried that yet either. I'm hoping that works. The Manchego is kind of a drier cheese. Um, it crumbles really easily. Doesn't melt really well though. But it's got a sharp kind of bite too, with it being a cave aged cheese. Got a nutty flavor to it. Did you notice that? Yeah, it goes well with the wine. It kind of pulls down some of that acidity and gives it a little bit. Gives the wine a little bit more depth. Like you said, it has an it, the cheese has a nutty quality and it kind of imparts that into the wine itself. Gives it a, a little bit more rounded, rounded flavor. No, I I think that's good. It's a good start for a pairing. Mm-hmm. I started to uh, cut up a baguette and have the baguette with her cheese, and I thought, no, we don't need the baguette. No, we don't need those extra carbs right now. Right. But, yeah, I think it's a it's a good pairing. What are you going to have next? I'm going to try the tuna next. So tell me a little bit about the tuna. So it, it's like I said, it's a um, soy sauce, ahi tuna. So you take some soy sauce, you take some honey, and you take some ginger, a little bit of pepper. What else was in there? I think that was basically what the marinade was and you marinate it 30 minutes or more and then you cook the tuna i seared it you could have you could have put it on the charcoal grill if you right. wanted to so i just seared it did you try it you know it's a it is a i did it's a good pairing the, it's uh, not as fatty a fish as some right but it's a robust it's a robust fit i love tuna your mom doesn't you know she'll she'll eat it she'll eat it this way Oh, the other, you know, I didn't say ginger, but there's ginger in there. You know, chop that up and you get that extra special flavor of ginger. Yeah, I think some of those, like, Asian-style flavors are going to go really well with this wine. You know, like you said, it's got that ginger, the, the soy, the saltiness from the soy. And, you know, tuna is, you know, tuna is, like I said, tuna is a really hearty fish. It's really kind of, like, steaky and, you mm-hmm. know. It, it's got a lot of flavor holding on to it. In some ways, I'd ever ha- rather have a tuna steak than a beef steak steak. i can totally understand that and but this wine you know i think this wine holds up to the fish the other thing that's in this marinade is a um, sesame seed oil that's the other thing i forgot and i could have sprinkled sesame seeds on it but i decided not to because i didn't want them charred I, i love tuna what do you think of the pairing the tuna and the and the wine yeah yeah i like it yeah very good what are you kind of getting out of it? So I'm getting the sweetness. So tuna sort of has a sweet taste. It's not like uh, salmon. Uh, salmon has a more sweet taste than tuna. Tuna is is uh, more substantial. You get you know they pair very well because there's not a whole lot of fat with tuna. I think I did try Josh your pork belly with with this wine, and that that works well as well. It works but, well also. 
Yeah, I was I was gonna get to that after we went through your stuff. Okay. <laughs> so the tuna, so the tuna works well because you know it brings. What were you saying? Say that again. It was bringing the what to it. Well, it's not fatty, but it brings sweetness because the the tuna sort of has a sweetness to it. The sesame seed oil. I taste that ginger and the ginger and the wine. They kind of pair pretty well because you get the ginger and then you get. I don't know if it's not blueberries and it's not raspberries. Kind of like blackberry. It's a it's like a blackberry jam that this wine has. Or like a cassis. No, it's not really up to cassisiness. No. It's, it's like a blackberry or a really, really cooked overripe raspberry. So as far as this, this winery, you said uh, yours was like planted in the 60s. Is that right? Yeah. This one was planted in 1982. Oh, wow. So yeah. Really, yeah. really young. Video. Really young. And it's only about 200 acres. I, I don't think they buy contract great, but they have more than just the Pinot Noir. Yeah. And this is their reserve level. They have a they have an entry-level Pinot Noir. That's right. As well, as I've had it before. And I actually looked at buying their Pinot Gris or their Chardonnay, um, but since I knew you were doing it from, from them, I decided to go with something. Yeah, they have uh, nine, nine different grape varieties. They have a Pinot Noir, a Pinot Gris, like you said, a Riesling, uh, this uh, uh, Sauvignon Blanc. They have uh, several others here. Muscat. What is that grape? Muscat. <laughs> well, I mean, is it? It's a red. No, it's a white. Oh, okay. It's a normally it's seen in the Loire Valley. Okay. So they have biodynamic certification of 2008. So you know they're they're very proud of these things. And the elevation is, you know, not that high. It's like 210 to 375. Well, and depending on where you're at, you know, we kind of mentioned the microclimates of of the Willamette Valley. And so a microclimate is basically if you're driving down the road and let's say you're on the back roads and, then, you know, you go down a hill and that hill is in the in that valley is covered with fog. But then you come back up into the, at, the, at the crest of the hill. You don't have that fog. Well, that valley is a microclimate mm-hmm. of the area mm-hmm. that you're driving through because it's a little because it's different. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know Willamette has a lot of these little microclimates, and that's why the vineyard sites are smaller because they're hitting they're hitting they're trying to hit these little microclimates. And that's something I've noticed of of regions who are younger than okay. older regions. Yeah, they'll plant only in these microclimates where it's really good to grow certain things rather than just go in the whole spread. Like if you go into, you know, some of the California read some of the areas in California and definitely more in France, you know, the entire region, the entire hillside is covered in vine, but you only have this one little spot that's, you know, Grand Cru or Premier Cru. Yeah. And yeah. so it's kind of like, especially Oregon and Washington, it's like they're only planting in these Premier Cru and Grand Cru kind of areas rather than just putting it in the whole in the whole area. So they're being a little bit more specific about where they're where they're building, where they're planting. So when we did some tasting in Willamette Valley, you'd be up on the hill at the tasting site and you'd look down and you'd have like these little hill terraced areas and a couple of those would have different uh grapes. Because it was that microclimate that you're talking about. Yeah, and it's not really seen. You know, it's something I think is very specific to uh, the Pacific Northwest of the United States and some other places. But they, they, I mean, the only way I can describe it is like pocket plant. Exactly, exactly. So the what's the last pairing you have, Dad? Italian sausage. I want to say spaghetti, but no. We, we did the angel hair. I got a little uh, Parmesan cheese sprinkled on top. This is so it's, like, of, it's like a bolognese. Yeah. Well, and what we do is we cheat. We we, pot, we buy uh, a sauce in the jar. Paul Newman's. It, it's Paul Newman's sock and Rooney. So he has its own sauce. He has the vegetables in there with it. And it's just like quick and dirty. And so anytime we're on a trip, we just buy that at the store, go back to the hotel, the cabin, the whatever, open our bottle of wine, fix this up, and enjoy. So I hope this pairs well. Kind of cooled off from, from when we cooked it. Have you tried? I'm trying to get into it, and it's kind of frozen. Yeah, that's really good. Because, you know, I mentioned that this wine might be a little bit young, and so it's a little bit extra acidic. But that acidity goes really well with the acidic body of the tomatoes. I feel like it's really good. 
And it's funny when you said this is the Marchese family that did this. And now that I kind of think about it, it, it tastes like some Northern Italian wine that the Marchese do. Because um, Northern Italy is normally, when it comes to red wine, it's Nebbiolo, which is a light-skinned grape. Okay. Kind of like Pinot Noir, but it's more tannic than than Pinot Noir. And you get that like big acidic bite of this young of this young wine. And also old school Barolos and Barbarescos are meant to be aged for ten years even before they're drank. Okay. So I I kinda understand a little bit why this wine is the way it is. This being their reserve Pinot Noir, you know, I really think when they build it they expect it to be aged for a while. Yeah, but it's good. It's good now. It's very good now. But I re- I really like that pairing. I think of which the, one the spaghetti the the pasta bolognese. Yeah, yeah. I think out of out of what you out of the pairings that you have that that that's my favorite pairing on the table for uh for the Pinot Noir. Well, sneak a bite of that. Oh, I see you watch. I, I'm watching you. You got a pork belly. What do you think? The pork belly is delicious. That's all I've gotten to so far. Well, I know it's delicious. What about the wine? I hadn't tasted it. Yeah, it's good. Um, the the acid still comes through, but I still think the pasta is actually a better pairing than the pork belly. Okay, good. We like a uh, when we do the pasta. You know, a cab will go well. Pinot Noir will go well. That's typically our two standbys on that. Yeah, I think with the with the pork, there's not enough acid. There's not enough acid in it to go in the Pinot Noir. No, there's not enough acid in the pork to to round out the um, Pinot Noir, but there is with the tomato, the tomato in the pot. Between the two wines and the six pairings, which one might be your favorite? Oh, the pork and the Pinot Gris. I think I have to agree with you. I think that's the best pairing on the table, and I think it's partially because <clears throat> it affects both. I mean, a close second is the the pasta and the Pinot Noir. Because it is more of a acidic and astringent Pinot Noir, I think it goes really, really well with the pasta. And the pasta rounds it out and allows you to taste more of what's going on in the wine. So on this website, Josh, they got to click for the wine club. Mm-hmm. They got to click to visit, contact us, events, newsletter. It's like I want to sign up for all this stuff. Well, go for it. I I don't think we can get I don't think we can get this wine shipped to us. Never hurts to try. Well, you're right. You're right. I mean, I never thought I'd get grower champagne shipped to me, but Backcourt does it. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe I should try it. So I don't... Do you have any questions about this or anything? Did I it say anything count? about how long it was aged well, in oak barrels before it was bottled? I didn't see that. No, I don't see it there either. Oh, yeah, I was just curious. From root to bottle. From our land to you. That's that biodynamic. That's good enough for me. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's it. So we're ready to move to the blind? Yeah. All right. So we're at the blinding time. Once again, I'm using a tasting sheet, which was developed by a mentor of mine, uh, Jennifer Hendrickson, who's actually the director of, I think, education and uh, hospitality at Domain Serene in Oregon. Okay. All right. Here we go. Uh, this is a red wine. It is a deep ruby color. It's a deep ruby color going out to a watery meniscus. It is clear because I can read through it. Um, there's a little bit of like magenta-iness to it as well um, as I'm going through it. There's no evidence of gas or sediment in the wine. The legs on this very clean glass I will come back to later. Now, onto the nose, onto my allergy nose. It's clean. There's no real faults to it. Getting some, like, dried violet. It's Not a, a whole lot of smell to it. No, it's, I call it a moderate intensity. It's definitely youthful, though. Yeah. Yeah, some, you know, bright dried flowers, red, blue, red fruits, kind of cherries, maybe even some, like, strawberry. Strawberry. What would you say about the legs? I said I'd come back to them later. There's no real... There's a little bit of vegetalness, some kind of like green quality to it. Um, I don't really get, I kind of get some some earthiness, but not really anything overly powerful and no real like stone characteristic or oakiness. No real barnyard? No barnyard? No. So. That's good. 
I'm going to taste the wine is clean. Uh, acid is medium plus. Alcohol, probably medium or medium plus. Tannins are medium plus on this wine. Um, it is a kind of lean, leanish wine. There's some roundness to it, but the tannins kind of make it feel linear. Ooh. What? Confirming those red fruits, but there is a, mm. a, a pithy bitteriness to this wine. But yeah. Confirming those same kind of red fruits, a um, uh, earthiness, kind of dusty, strawberry, light cherry. Any blackberry? Earliness on the on the palate. Um, a little bit more herbaceous, some like kind of greeny qualityness to it. Um, the fruits are definitely fresh or like a little bit overripe, but they're definitely not cooked or anything. Um, there's a little bit, like I said, there was some dustiness, not really any kind of earthiness right away. Um yeah, tannins are really are really shown through, but they're not like ripping. They're definitely up on the front of the teeth, really at the back of the mouth. Um, there's some like crushed stone dustiness. There's no real like forest floor or anything like that to it. This is definitely a bone dry wine. Not real earthy. Mm-mm. Bone dry, um, you said. Yeah, that that bitterness kind of follows through. It's kind of dominating the wine a little bit. Um, complexity is medium, finishes medium plus. Because of those factors, I think this is an old world wine. Um, I think it's from a moderate climate. Possible grapes with this. Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, Grenache, Mm. uh, Tempranillo. Um, It could come from France or Spain. Okay. Um, I mean, it could technically. No, I don't think it would come from France. Or not France. Italy. Italy and Spain. Not France. Not France? Mm-mm. You sure? Um, I think it's three to five where, years old. Where are you getting that bitterness? Uh, it's uh, like a tannic kind of bitterness. Okay. So I think I think this is I think this is an old world wine. I think it is Sangiovese based. I think it is from Italy. I think it is from Chianti. Um, I think it is a, a DOCG level. Um, I couldn't get into a farther region than Chianti and I think it is 2015 so that, that's what I think it is I think it's a oh, Sangiovese it. I think All it's right. a Sangiovese coming from from the Chianti region I think it's from 2015 and you won't find out next week that's the right week after <laughs> is when you'll find out because so next hang- week we're doing something special so hang on hang on yeah, next week I'm I'm super excited uh, to be doing a podcast with the guys from the Straight Cut. Oh, I'm excited too, Josh. Yeah, they it's are gonna be fun. Yeah, they are a cigar podcast, and mu- they love music. So I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about our music. Um, and, and they and we're a Julius Caesar cigar. Yes, we're gonna do the Julius Caesar cigar. And Dad, what's your cocktail you're gonna be doing? I'm gonna do the Blood and Sand. And what would they? What would our listeners need to make sure they have in their bar for a blood and sand? So you need to make sure you have a blended Scotch whiskey. You need to make sure you have sweet vermouth. And you need to make sure you have cherry herring. Oh well, thanks, Josh. <laughs> you know, I was at a loss here. And orange juice. But when it comes when it comes to the liquors, you need to make sure you have a blended Scotch whiskey. We suggest Famous Grouse. Uh, you need to have a sweet vermouth, and you need to have a you need to have cherry herring. What are you going to be doing? I'm going to be doing a twist on a Negroni. So uh, I'm going to be doing a rum Negroni. So you're going to need to have that di- that Diplomatico rum that you already had to taste with us. Or the Bacardi. No, you need to have the Diplomatico. Because oh, okay, okay, that's, okay. that's what we're going to use. That's what we're, we're going to use. We're okay. going to use the Diplomatico rum. We're going to have a sweet vermouth. Um, we suggest the Camparo Antica for our sweet vermouth. And then you need to have Campari. So we're going to be doing two cocktails with the guys from the straight cut. It's going to be a good old time. Uh, so rather than releasing on Thursday, we will release on Friday because that is when the straight cut also releases their show. So uh, if you love cigars and or if you love music, check, check the guys over at Straight Cut out there. They're an awesome duo from here in Little Rock. One of them is a tobacconist at a local shop called Weston, and the other one is just a big cigar fan, and he's a, also a, a live music fan. They're, uh, they're some cool guys, and I look forward to recording with them. It's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. So uh, we look forward to seeing you next week. Once again, we'll be on Friday. Follow us on all of our 
all the socials on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Remember, we're Acquired Tasting or Acquired Tastings. And follow us on Facebook. Give us a subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and throw us a review. And if, if for some reason you can't review us on your platform, jump on over to iTunes and give us a review there. And don't don't be worried about telling us uh, we've got a little problem. We want to know about that. And we want to fix it. Yeah, we, we enjoy hearing the constructive criticism that we get to help us become better because we are only, what, 16 Well, this episodes. is number 15, I think. We're, yeah, we're 15 episodes into this, so we're, uh, we're, learning, learning. we're learning and growing as we go. But we really appreciate all of you who've been listening. But once again, I'm Josh Mills. And I'm John Mills. And we'll see you next time.